on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, growing seaweed in the North Atlantic under almost perfect conditions. And that's mainly because of the temperature in the water. It's stable between 6 and 12 degrees all year round. So it's never get higher than 12 degrees in the summer, never lower than 6 degrees in the winter. It's not very good if you want to swim, but it's perfect for seaweed cultivation. And the young gun of beekeeping in Tasmania. We created a category in our store, which is the apiary department. Uh, so we held an open day in October, gearing up for the 2022 season. Three hours on a Saturday morning, uh, we had 150 people through our doors, uh, a transaction every minute, uh, which for beekeeping sales is almost unheard of. Yes, beekeeping just getting more and more popular. And a seaweed industry to feed livestock centred on the Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic. That story coming up as well. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday. Where in just a moment, we'll see where the local asparagopsis industry is at on Tasmania's east coast. Also, Australian wool producers pursuing processing options in Vietnam and the electric ute test drive we bought you last week. Is the ute up to the task of doing a similar job to diesel utes on farm at the moment? We'll have an opinion on that later in the program. Uh, Also, a check on the weather and your thoughts on any issues via the text line. Most welcome, 0438 922 936, that number. 0438 922 936. First up to the seaweed industry and Tasmanian seaweed company Seaforest has now signed up eight companies to use their seaweed supplement, Asparagopsis, to reduce emissions in cattle and sheep. That includes beef producers as well as fashion companies like MJ Bale, where the seaweed is used to reduce the emissions from the sheep producing their woolen clothes. CEO and co-founder of Seaforest, Sam Elson, has told Cassie Huff the raising of $35 million last year was the boost the company needed to commercialise the seaweed supplement. So we've made a huge amount of progress. That, that money that was raised went towards the establishment of our marine farm. We have an 1,800 hectare marine farm on Mercury Passage down the southeast coast of Tasmania. You know, and now we have a, you know, a commercial supply of seaweed coming off that farm, which is really exciting. And now a, a, you know, a commercially available product, we call Seafeed, available for the industry. And now we're working with a number of farmers around Australia, including Fonterra, um, Rangers Valley, MJ Bale, um, the burger chain Grilled, who's recently re- uh, released the burger into the market, which is a very exciting milestone for the company. So it's happening. Um, you know, I, I would say that it's not happening fast enough. You know, uh, I think we would like to see more farmers using this product sooner um, to be able to reach our climate potential in terms of uh, emissions reduction impact. How many contracts would you, have you signed? I think we've got about eight or nine customers now uh, that are using the product, which is really exciting, and that's across beef, dairy and wool. And and we continue to look at how we can get to... So this is within a a controlled feeding environment, so we're talking about, um, with the exception of MJ Bale and Grilled, which MJ Bale are, uh, you know, grazing sheep, and and Grilled used grass-fed cattle. It's one of the world's first grass-fed pilot programs um, but most of our product is uh, in a liquid form that can be delivered into feedlots and dairy so controlled in feeding environments so now our focus really is on um, product development so how do we get this 
product into, say, extensive grazing systems up in Northern Territory where farmers don't see their animals for six months at a time. You know, so we're working on lick blocks um, and bolus, a slow-release device that will live inside the animal that will release the product over an extended period of time. So that's exciting. How much more scale are you actually going to be able to extract from your system? Quite scalable. I think we've got an 1,800-hectare marine lease. Um, we've got... Uh, an option for three and a half thousand hectares around that which we haven't activated but we've got a land-based site with five and a half hectares which is where all of our science and and hatchery takes place so laboratories and 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 so forth but then last year we bought uh, uh, a 30 hectare land-based site a former abalone farm in swansea that has 660 concrete ponds already in place that's for land-based production so it's a totally different methodology but it's something that we've also established so all of those assets collectively we believe we'll be able to uh, feed around you know, between two and four million head of cattle. And why I say that is because there's a lot that comes into the, you know, the breeding and the, and the natural selection of the Asparagopsis varieties that we work with and the concentration of bioactives, which are responsible for mitigating methane in the first place. So we, we're really um, excited about the potential that that holds. So it's, it's, it's a mixture of assets and improvements in our science to be able to deliver that outcome. There was the recent Chubb review and an increasing focus on not just greenwashing but being able to back up claims of sustainability. What sort of systems do you have in place now for the companies that you are working with if they are ever audited in some way to, to be able to verify claims they're making around their methane abatement? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we, we have is a, a very large body of evidence that has been established by the CSIRO but also conducted by a number of different um, academic institutions and universities around the world that continue to verify this strong abatement outcome from a very small dietary inclusion of this particular seaweed. So, um, for, for example, grilled, when they went to market, they used green feeding devices, these methane capturing devices that lived on the farm and captured the breath from the animals. And they had the University of New England um, sign off on that to ensure that they had that sort of traceability with regards or the integrity behind their claims that they were making to consumers. Um, but more broadly, I think when we think about this across Australia and as we get to scale, we need it. We need, obviously, from the Chubb Review, the, the findings that we need to form this cake, review, cake committee, which is the integrity committee, which will be the independent body overseeing the clean energy regulator, which is the body which, in, in fact, um, develops or helps develop with proponents um, method development. And so we hope to get a livestock supplement method developed under the ERF, which will enable farmers to access carbon credits and we're really hoping that that will come online because that will deliver a a significant incentive to farmers to really adopt this solution but second to that i think what when we talk about traceability obviously feed records are integral ensuring that we can have some sort of traceability to say we delivered the product and that product somehow made it into the mouth of the animal and then wherever that beef or leather or go wherever those products go, um, we somehow have that sort of traceability. That's important. But I think that exists already within the supply chain, you know, beef supply chain. Um, one of the things I would just say about methane abatement claims is that at a point when you're getting to sort of the 26 million cows across Australia, we're going to have to take, a, I guess, a herd average, uh, making sure that we've got the right level of information to ensure that there's integrity around consumption, but tying back or correlating back to peer-reviewed published papers that existed in in these controlled academic environments so we can't put methane chambers for example on farms all around Australia we have to rely on the dose response that occurred in universities like uh, the UNE in Armidale. You've done the deal with MJ Bale to improve the sustainability of the, the wool supply chain there but 
animals obviously can be broken up into lots of different parts. You've got leather from the hides as well, and there's a huge market, worldwide market there. Are there any other fashion companies that are keen to go down the same track that MJ Bale's gone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the really exciting things that we've got coming up is, uh, you know, a potential partnership with Gucci. You know, they've been looking at purchasing the leather from the from the animals which we've been feeding. So, uh, as you said, you know, the, the, the best cuts go to the fine restaurants and you've got, you know, the, the trim that goes to burger chains and then you've got the leather which goes into the fashion supply chain or, or into motor vehicle manufacturing. Um, you know, Gucci take about 12% of the animals' emissions and they purchase offsets currently in order to reach carbon neutrality. Now what they're looking at doing is re- investing into the supply chain to actually have a, a low emissions product um, which is super exciting and a brand like Gucci can make a real big difference. Yeah that's that's quite a big step up. So you are really looking at going global with this? Absolutely. I mean I think climate change is a global problem you know we definitely want to take our growing technology to other parts of the world so that we can really facilitate and so the supply of product which will reduce emissions uh, around the world. At CEO and co-founder of Sea Forest, Sam Elsom, speaking to Cassie Huff about the expansion of the seaweed producer and the commercialisation of the seaweed supplement, Asparagopsis, to reduce methane emissions from their Triabunna base. But they've uh, expanded, as you heard, with the uh, raising of that money last year. We'll find out what's happening with seaweed production in the North Atlantic in just a moment. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close today. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six is our text line number. We've heard what's happening with seafood production locally in Tasmania, but what's happening with production in other parts of the world? Ocean Rainforest is one of Europe's largest growers, producing kelp for animal feed and food markets in the Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic. Co-founder Oliver Gregerson spoke to Larissa Smith about his 10-year journey to farm commercial quantities of seaweed. The idea came 15 years ago, but the idea was basically how can we take up CO2 from the ocean and then produce uh, bioethanol from it. That was the idea. And it took us three to five years to uh, come to the point where we actually had the necessary permit to put a line in the water and then to start test out this idea. And during that time, we also realized that uh, producing energy from seaweed would not be cost efficient. So we had changed our market focus to look at food and feed instead. And now we are 10 years back, 2012, 2013. And when we, and that's for me, that's when, when, when our journey really started. And uh, it was really at a slow scale uh, or a small scale. Using my own money, we were able to get some grants. Then we had uh, co-founders who was willing to, to work and receive sweat capital for, for, for what they did. The Faroe Islands are pretty remote, wild, rugged. How do you grow seaweed in that environment? We, we have some 
natural competitive advantages, and that's mainly because of the temperature in the water. It's stable between 6 and 12 degrees all year round. So it's never get higher than 12 degrees in the summer, never lower than 6 degrees in the winter. And it's not very good if you want to swim, but it's perfect for seaweed cultivation. And that enables us to uh, harvest seaweed from, you know, in our season from April to October, which is our spring, summer, fall season. It also enables us to seed a line, put it in the ocean, and leave it there for three years. And in those three years, we can make up to six harvests on those lines. That gives us a competitive advantage compared to if you're doing similar seaweed cultivation in waters where you have 15 or 20 degrees Celsius. Say in Australia. Yeah, because then you typically have to harvest everything you have on your line and then uh, reseed it and deploy it again. That's an extra cost. In the Faroe Islands, we are, we are based in the middle of the North Atlantic, between Iceland, Scotland, and Norway. And it's, it's a really good condition also with nutrient supply, because seaweed, you know, it, it grows with, with the natural nutrients in the ocean and uh, with photosynthesis, and then it grows with the carbon, takes up CO2 as it, as it grows. What species of seaweed do you cultivate? We cultivate uh, Saccharina latissima, also known as combo in, in Asia, and then wakame, which or Alaria scalenta, which is known as wakame. That, that is, that are, that, those are the two spe- main species we are cultivating. But then we have uh, a species called Laminaria digitata. You have a similar species here in Australia as well, that grows cell-seeded on, on, on the lines after two or three years, and then we can harvest that. So in terms of uh, expansion, yeah, we, we see expansion possibilities in, in the West Coast of the U.S., definitely also in the North Atlantic because we have a high demand for, for the products or for the seaweed we are producing. We dry some of it and then we ferment some of it. We sell it into food and feed markets. The way I look at it is that the market will, will continue to grow. Is that dependent on government policy? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I think the main driver is the generation set and millennials that are asking for food products that are sustainable. They want carbon footprint to be reduced as much as you can, and they have want healthy food. Seaweed is healthy when it's consumed. If you add it to feed, you can contribute to reduce the carbon footprint. So, uh, And we take up carbon when we harvest the seaweed from the ocean. Seaweed as a resource is, is, an, is an interesting alternative sustainable source for food and feed producers. They are asking for such alternatives because the customers in, in the shops are asking for it. That's driving this. Uh, the governments can definitely help if they uh, make it attractive to use sustainable goods. They can especially help in uh, expanding this industry if the regulations around permits to grow seaweed in the ocean are made more practical so it's easier for entrepreneurs to start working with this. You see red tape as being one of the main drawbacks to to industry growth. In Europe, in US, and I don't know much about Australia, but I heard one or two things. Red tape is definitely one of the big hindrances for making this industry grow 
faster than it does today. And, and sometimes I find it hard to say an industry in the Western Hemisphere. It's definitely an industry in Asia. But in Europe, in the US, it's uh, a lot of entrepreneurial endowers. Of course, we hope this will become an industry and the cultivation. We are a number of companies, not many, perhaps one or two hands, where we start to look like you know, commercial industries. And, um, are you making money? Not yet. Uh, we hope we can make money from our ferries operation in 24. We need to grow around a thousand ton of wet weight seaweed, then, then we should be in break even. We want to grow up to at least producing between five and 10,000 ton in 25, not only in the Faroes, but also in the US. And then we're also looking to, into expanding in other uh, countries in Europe. We have to have a lot on our plate because uh, there's a lot to do. Oliver Gregerson, co-founder of European seaweed company Ocean Rainforest, which is located off the Faroe Islands, talking there to Larissa Smith. And if you don't know too much about the Faroe Islands, they're part of Denmark in the North Atlantic, and the coat of arms for the islands is a ram. There you go. Coming up on the Country Hour, the way forward for farmers in Australia when it comes to carbon credits. Celebrate Sydney World Pride 2023. Go wild, baby. Head to ABC iView for all the magic of live and proud. Sydney World Pride opening concert and the fabulous Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade. Happy Mardi Gras! And discover a world of pride with brilliant shows on ABC iView and on the ABC Listen app. Glitter, more glitter and more glitter. (laughs) Sydney World Pride 2023. Here on the ABC. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Yeah, just a note for all pyrethrum growers, the TFGA Pyrethrum Grower Committee AGM and Grower Meeting is on tonight, 7 o'clock at the Alveston Football Club. So just a reminder about that, 7 o'clock tonight, Alveston Football Club for the TFGA Pyrethrum Grower Committee AGM and also the Grower Meeting to be held tonight. Well, Australian farmers are wondering which way to go with carbon credits after hearing some dire warnings last year. Professor Andrew McIntosh told farmers not to sell as carbon levels fluctuate significantly with the seasons and farmers will also need their credits to access some markets. MacDoc, which is an ag investment group based in Sydney and London, has started up a carbon services business called Atlas Carbon. David Clawton spoke to CEO Ashley Silver about the risk and the benefits of carbon farming and what the data they've collected from a 1,000 farms in the Maya grazing system is showing. What we see through the Maya grazing database is, from a conservative point of view, if you are improving your grazing metrics from, say, the, the bottom quartile of, of grazing management up to the kind of top quartile of grazing management, you can see a production uplift of between 18 and 20 percent, and these are pretty rough numbers, but we are seeing that across that broad swath of thousand farms that we've we've been analyzing. So depending, again, on the size of the property, what you're running, uh, what your current um, annual numbers look like, um, think about what a 20 percent increase in that could mean for you. Yeah. And so you're focusing specifically on the soil carbon methodology. Is that what it's called? Uh, Yes. 
So our current initial focus is on soil carbon um, as being really likely the most relevant for many of the grazers that we work with and are focusing on, though there is a new method that we believe the government will be releasing sometime this year um, called the integrated farm method, and that'll make it much easier for farmers to register not just a soil carbon project, but if they wanted to have a part of their property for an environmental planting, so essentially planting native trees um, in certain areas, um, or uh, elements such as um, HIR or avoided deforestation could also be potential um, methods included in that. Right. But those are the sort of the, the problem areas that in terms of that review, avoided deforestation was the one where they said, well, we're not going to do that anymore unless we can tweak that later on. And human-induced regeneration was another one that, you know, people like Andrew McIntosh was saying that's all a fraud. Um, or uh, and, and Chubb himself, who conducted the review, said his main thing is to get people to turn farmland into native forests that can permanently store carbon. So there is there's a massive shift going on in this marketplace, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly, and I think it's just a continuation. Um, carbon markets are new. Really, they emerged in the 90s from the original Kyoto Protocol, And there's a continued evolution as we learn more about what are the different things that we can do to improve nature and improve the climate. So I just see the Chubb Review as the next iteration of, you know, trying to make sure we're doing the right thing and creating high quality uh, carbon credits that are really truly delivering um, climate value, so to speak. Yes. And and the other thing is, if I'm a farmer, Am I going to sell into the private market, which is what Wilmot did, isn't it? They, they sold privately their carbon credit storage to Microsoft, or am I going to sell into the Australian government system? So, what do you reckon? What's the best way, do you think, for most farmers? Um, well, so a bit to unpack there. Um, so, the the essence of the the private market, we could also call that the voluntary market. Um, and so, for instance, in a market like the the U.S., there is not a government mandated um, carbon credit market, and so there's a bunch of what we call voluntary schemes. Um, so that is the scheme that was independently regulated by um, an associative body. Um, this one was um, the Regen Network. Some of the larger ones are Vera or VCS. Um, and they oversee the methods. In Australia, the Australian government does oversee the methods, but either way, you could still be selling your credits to the private sector. Yes. And so does that still have high integrity, do you think? That, you know, and, and, and looking at Wilmot as a deal, for example, do you think that's a – is that still – given all these questions about the credibility and the actual carbon that's being taken out of the atmosphere, is that still a, a sound way to go? Um, I, I believe it is. Um, I mean, when we look at, you know, do you go through a voluntary method outside of Australia or into the Australian market, if you can comply with what the Australian regulator mandates, um, we look at the price. And um, currently today, the Australian carbon credit unit um, sells at a higher price than many of the voluntary credit units. And so, we're trying to do the economic analysis on, you know, right now, if you're hedging your bets, I would go with the Australian market because you could probably get more bang for your buck. But it can take um, several years and the auditing of that is pretty ferocious, isn't it? That's the whole point of that, about the credibility of the Australian system. Right. 
Right. And so, you know, the value of an ACU is high because it is one of the most rigorous methods globally um, just to make sure that if a company, if an airline is buying an offset to put emissions so we can you know, go on our vacation uh, with a little less guilt. And feel um, good about it, yep. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that um, there is truly something being done to impact the environment on the other end to sequester that carbon. And of those um, thousand that are in your system and your database, what percentage of those would be selling into the Australian government system and what would, what would be selling to the voluntary scheme? Yeah. Well, I would say the vast majority of those thousand are not even registered for a carbon project yet. They have just started doing these practices because they believe in the benefits from a production and a land resilient perspective. We actually don't have hard numbers on those who are already in a carbon project. But um, from my understanding, the majority of properties that are registering are registering through the Australian government. But as but some people, like Professor Andrew McIntosh, is saying, don't sell your carbon. You're going to need it to access markets. What advice are you giving your clients about about selling the credits? Mm-hmm. I I would just say look at the economics and the financials. Um, I am weary of a level of fear mongering to tell primary producers that markets are going to be closed off to them if they don't comply with something as rigorous and onerous and really untested, even from an economic viability perspective, as trying to be carbon neutral. Um, we, we have explored what a carbon neutrality price premium would need to look like for a farmer to get the same amount of return on a premium pricing for a carbon neutral product as selling their carbon credits on the open market. And it really doesn't seem feasible, especially with what Australians are facing today with growing inflation and already trying to just pay to put food on the table. If you really want to put that price premium to the end consumer at the same level of value that a farmer could get by selling their carbon credits on the open market, it seems like a pretty tough sell. So if you had to sacrifice selling your meat to Europe, for example, where they, mm-hmm. they're particularly sensitive about this kind of stuff, you'd, you'd do that because you can get more money selling your carbon credit on the Australian market, perhaps, or the voluntary market. I would just say that each farmer should really look at the cost benefits there. You know, if they're selling to the most elite of, of buyers in Europe, then potentially, but, you know, that market has its limits and its demand is not endless. It's Atlas Carbon CEO Ashley Silver speaking there with David Clawton about the way forward with carbon credits. Still to come on the country, our move to have Australian wool processed in Vietnam. And one year on for a dairy farmer affected by the tra- tragic Lismore floods. Plus, a check on the weather. First up, though, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. On the return of State Parliament for the year, Premier and Health Minister Jeremy Rockliffe has faced questioning over the state's health service, including a young woman's seven-hour wait for an ambulance with a suspected spinal injury. Opposition leader Rebecca White says people are waiting longer than ever and that ramping so widespread, paramedics are being rostered specifically to ramp. The National Construction Union says engineered stone is a death sentence for Australian workers and must be banned. The CFMEU says nearly one in four workers exposed to silica dust from engineered stone before 2018 have been diagnosed with silicosis or other related diseases. The Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation says a number of aged care providers are looking to avoid a wage increase ordered by the Fair Work Commission. The commission ruled that a 15% pay rise for aged care and personal 
personal care workers should it should be introduced from July. And the Tasmanian Tigers have dropped top order batsman Ben McDermott from their Sheffield Shield squad ahead of their four-day match against Western Australia starting Thursday. McDermott has struggled this season. He'll be replaced in the team by Mac Wright. Full bulletin at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. G'day, Tony. How are last you? Last day of summer today. Yeah, last day of summer. Right? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't really feel like it. Last last day of the last season of last year was yes. uh, how the climatologist at work put it. <laughs> Not wrong, I suppose. And Any... I guess we're all beginning the uh, short 10-month wait until uh, next summer. Yeah. Any, uh, any word on uh, what it was officially like? That won't come out for a day or two? Yeah, the the, uh, the the national climate summary is going to be out tomorrow, I think, but then the state-based one for Tassie, I think Friday afternoon, but it, it's probably going to be not surprisingly show a you know, drier than average summer for the West in particular yeah. uh, and probably going to be just a touch warmer than normal too. But yeah, fi- final uh, summary should be out and cleared uh, Friday afternoon. Yeah, we've got um, we've got one of the climatologists on the uh, from the Bureau on the program tomorrow to look at the autumn outlook, see how much... Uh, rainfall Ooh. is predicted, so that's on tomorrow's program. Uh, talking rainfall, is there any of any note? A little bit, like Ereba up in the northwest reported uh, 11 millimetres, and uh, overnight and this morning up uh, to 9am, uh, parts of the northwest reported between two to four millimetres in general, and one to two millimetres about places into the northeast, about higher ground. What we're likely to see. For uh, the rest of today is some showers feeding into the northwest and into northern and northeastern Tasmania gradually during the day uh, as a trough sits over Bass Strait. We'll see some showers develop about central eastern parts and uh, the east coast later this afternoon as well before all that nonsense should clear away during this evening. So expecting single-digit single rainfall amounts uh, for the rest of today, so around five millimetres or so. And uh, you're waiting for some rain on the west coast. You'll you'll get a few light spits this afternoon, but then uh, a little bit more overnight tonight as a a little cold front crosses us. We're expecting a a small cold front to cross Tasmania tomorrow morning. It's not going to do a great deal. It should just clear away any shower activity that's left about northern and eastern areas, but there'll be uh, fairly showery conditions into the west coast for all of Wednesday and, and much of Thursday following that. So once this rain clears from the north, Tony, it doesn't look like the north's going to get a great deal of rain until at least Friday, potentially not until Friday night, with uh, some northeasterlies bringing some more moisture on shore from Bass Strait. Okay, what sort of rainfall? Oh, not not a great deal to be honest this week. So if, you, if I were to put it into numbers for uh, written down Wednesday, five to fifteen millimetres into the west. Thursday, five to ten millimetres into the west, but less than one millimetre for the east coast. Friday, if you do get some showers, probably less than three millimetres, and mostly about the northeast and the northwest. Saturday and Sunday, there's there's more of a chance of some more moderate falls, but it still doesn't look like heaps. Uh, If you are holding out for rainfall, though, wait until next week. It looks like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there'll be a series of pretty decent cold fronts coming over the state, bringing plenty of rain to the north and and west of the state in particular. But at least uh, least some rain likely to spill over into the southeast during those days next week too. And the rest of the week for temperatures, are they going to be sort of average, not going anywhere 
south yet? Yeah, pretty pretty well. Goldilocks temperatures, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, we're slightly below average today, but we'll climb to slightly above average by Friday. And I'm talking the, the low 20s, is a low to mid 20s is an absolute maximum. Uh, but then those fronts will come through next week and, and drop us down a couple of degrees as well. So not exceptionally hot, but not exceptionally cold. And it doesn't look like we'll be having to worry about frosts or anything like that for a while. Nursery rhyme time in the Bureau with Goldilocks. I like mm. it. Uh, warnings, what, <laughs> what have we got for warnings? All right, we've got a strong wind warning current for tomorrow for the southeast coast and the southwest coast, but we're warnings-free today. And on the coastal waters today, we've got northwest to southwesterly winds in the range of 5 to 15 knots, although a bit more northerly down the east coast until later this afternoon. Tomorrow, westerly winds, 15 to 25 knots, lighter and more variable about the east coast uh, and reaching 30 knots over the far south. In terms of swell, it's pretty consistent both today and tomorrow with a west to southwesterly around 3 metres coming into the west and south through Bass Strait a westerly below one metre and uh, the east coast has got a southerly one to one and a half metre and our significant wave height uh, on the west coast 3.2 metres at the moment and uh, just over one metre on the east coast at the moment too. Okay Goldilocks had to put up with three bears didn't she? Yeah that's right yeah. Yeah okay. Yeah, I guess if, if you're summarising the next few days, it's not too hot, not too cold, not too windy, not too calm, not too wet, not too dry. It's perfect. Okay, thanks, Luke. Goldilocks sounds more optimistic than average, doesn't it? I think so, yeah, more colourful. Yeah. Thank you, right. Luke. Thanks, Tony. See ya. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with the latest information there for you on the weather as we head out of summer and into autumn. Now, coming up in just a moment, uh, processing wool in Vietnam. Most of our wool processed in China at this stage, but they're looking at Vietnam as well. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close today. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It's at the wool industry now, and 95% of Australian wool is purchased and processed in China. Wool growers have long raised concerns about being too reliant on the one buyer. Wool Producers Australia have now received funding for an industry representative to pursue processing opportunities in Vietnam. Joe Hall, the CEO of Wool Producers Australia, says this is about expanding markets for wool growers. We saw the opportunity arise to put in an expression of interest um, into the OzHub uh, process, which is an initiative between uh, DFAT or the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Australian Chamber of Commerce, Vietnam. So under that EOI process, uh, industries were invited to put forward uh, applications to investigate future trade opportunities with Australia or between Australia and Vietnam. Following our report from looking into domestic and diversified processing last year, where Vietnam was identified as one of four key locations, we thought it was a great opportunity to put in an application and we're really grateful that we were accepted. And what will this role entail for this representative? 
So at this stage, uh, the resource which will be based in Vietnam will look to establish networks and, and work in, within existing networks within Vietnam to investigate the feasibility or the opportunity to look at early stage full processing in Vietnam. Vietnam already has quite an established textile industry. What, what role does it play in the wool market? Well, traditionally, um, or currently, uh, Vietnam has this uh, textile processing industry over there, but it's more focused on synthetics and cotton. What we're hoping to achieve through this is to investigate the feasibility of wool processing, um, bearing in mind that AWI or the Woolmark company has had resources in Vietnam for a number of years and, and looking to generate interest within the Vietnamese processing sector, we'll look to capitalise on that and we'll work with that reso- uh, with the AWI staff in country as well. What do you think has been holding back uh, the growth of Vietnam as a player in wool processing? I think it's possibly uh, a couple of things. Um, one is a, a lack of knowledge of, of wool processing. It is quite a long and convoluted supply chain The other thing, there's some internal regulations that um, probably haven't been conducive to looking at at wet processings, um, including some pretty strict textile effluent restrictions. So we'll be looking to for some pathways to overcome those barriers that are in place. And why do you see this as important for wool growers' uh, diversity when it comes to uh, wool processing around the world? Well, we're in the, currently in the situation where we have a, a great trading partner um, in China, but uh, we're looking to for market expansion. So that's why we undertook the work last year and the, the year before investigating the feasibility of expanding current markets and, and building on the great relationship that we have. If you look at some of the trade tensions there's been between Australia and China, some commodities have been hit with uh, market access issues, but wool remained unscathed. Can you put that down to the fact that uh, while Australia is reliant on China for it to buy and process so much wool, well, China's so reliant on Australia for that uh, raw wool? Well, definitely. China is very invested in the wool industry um, and Australia being the largest producer of apparel wool. We just uh, seen the evolution of a really mutually beneficial relationship between the Australian wool production sector and the Chinese uh, processing sector. So we've had that good relationship in place and and that's continued unabated over the last few years. Joe Hall, CEO of Wool Producers Australia, speaking there to Josh Becker. Uh, Wool growers are raising concerns about being too reliant on the one buyer, that is China, and uh, Wool Producers Australia have now received funding for an industry rep to pursue processing opportunities in Vietnam. Well, you may have heard our test drive last week on the electric ute, the first commercially available electric ute. It's on a tour of Australia to show off the technology to farmers. But with a 330-kilometre range and a one-tonne towing capacity, experts say this EV ute isn't up to the job on most Australian farms. However, the ute signals a change to the power that will drive Australia's farm equipment into the future. Warwick Long spoke to Ben White, who tests farm equipment for the Kandinan Group, about what the technology has to offer. Yeah, well, look, it's probably one of the the easier things to uh, electrify, if you like, uh, on farm. And I think... uh, 
Yeah, it's great to see the the, the technology, and, and even if it's a, a quite a base model, um, uh, as as was pointed out in in uh, your little drive there, Warwick. I think uh, it's good to see the tech there, and and to see you know what will probably be the first step in an evolution of, of vehicles in the future. Um, but of course, you know. Uh, we really need something that's equivalent, that's going to be fit for purpose. And, and, uh, and when we say it's equivalent, it's got to be as good as, or if not better than, uh, than the, the current vehicles we've got uh, with regard to range, capacity and, and, uh, and towing uh, ability as well. So all those things need to come into play. And particularly a one-tonne towing capacity that's going to, to lead to a shorter driving experience when there's only 330 kilometres in an ideal world doesn't sound like we'll, it would entice many farmers. Is that fair to say? Oh, look, I think that's fair to say. Probably the bigger issue is that uh, that particular vehicle is only uh, a two-wheel drive, so it's only rear-wheel drive. Uh, I would think that most cockies would be looking for um, for something that's four-wheel drive. Um, you know, as uh, as you know, some of your, your text messages uh, alluded to earlier, we want to be able to drive through the paddock, we want to go and check stock, we want to be able to you know, carry loads to and from town. So, you know, um, again, it comes back to that equivalence and making sure that we've got something that's uh, that's going to do the job that we needed to do. So with your testing hat on, going through the things in your mind you'd like to see become available, what are the things that you're looking forward looking for in an EV ute in the future? Oh, look, I think, you know, it's been mentioned, the range is a big issue and, and we do big Ks in Australia um, and, and uh, probably more than anyone would do in, in Europe, say, on-farm or, or probably even in the US. Um, so, you know, range is a, is a big deal. And anyone who's driven a, an EV, and I have uh, have a few times, uh, range anxiety is a real thing. You know, so you're continually looking at the at the gauge and, um, I guess, planning where your next charge point's going to be. And so there's, there's a little bit of, uh, uh, I guess, anxiety and, and also planning that needs to be built into that. And that's OK. That's, that's part of uh, what we need to do. Uh, once that range sort of is equivalent to what we've got from a diesel perspective, uh, you know, if we're getting sort of seven, eight hundred, nine hundred k's to a, a, a charge, uh, as we would a, a tank of, of fuel, then you know that probably will dissipate a little bit. So yeah, range is a big one. Towing, uh, towing capacity is is, um, is important, and uh, and certainly that was uh, mentioned. But I think uh, you know there's there's obviously other vehicles out there that. Uh, from an EV perspective, the, and the Ford uh, F-150 Lightning is, is a good example. It's got about four and a half tonne towing capacity. Um, so, you know, there are other options out there that uh, that probably do tick a few more boxes. But as I say, it's good to see the tech here and the conversation starting. Yeah, so we've had uh, electric quads, electric side-by-side vehicles. Now there's electric utes. Where yeah. are electric vehicles going for in agriculture? Do we have electric tractors yet? Yeah, look, there are a couple uh, on the market. Um, there's a, a, a few being brought to market uh, in the next uh, couple of years. They're all pretty small, though, Warwick. You know, we're, we're sort of talking, um, you know, that 100 horsepower equivalent sort of size, which is good for horticulturalists and and uh, and smaller uh, area operators who aren't requiring that that big power for for say tillage or or uh, any you know, heavy duty sort of work. Uh, so you know they're out there. Fent have got one. Deer are bringing one uh, next year. So you know people should keep an eye out for that. I think one of the interesting things that that um, you know this, this all sort of points towards is that you know the the electric uh, the electrical drive systems is is probably what's key to all of this and and um, and the development of those in an EV sense. Uh, whether that's you know uh, wheel motors on tractors etc et or, or or components or even utes, uh, you know the development of that probably will will see 
I guess, the face of what we're driving, uh, regardless whether it's tractors or utes, uh, change in the future purely because, you know, we might move to, a, 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 I guess, a, uh, an intermediate stage where we're doing diesel electric. So, you know, diesel engine uh, driving electric wheel motors, you know, and that's, that's pretty exciting because they offer uh, a lot of the same sort of benefits, you know, zero uh, RPM uh, still with 100% torque and, and also, you know, high levels of efficiency in terms of um, power transmission. So, yeah, I think that's, um, that's exciting. That's Ben White, who tests farm equipment as a research engineer for the Kandinan Group. Speaking there to Warwick Long about the first commercially available electric ute for Australian farmers and whether it's up to the job that the diesel utes are doing at the moment. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close today. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, there seems to be a roaring trade of beekeeping gear in Tasmania at the moment. That's what one young ag employee found out when he smashed a business challenge and took out a national award recently. Meg Powell spoke to Kurt Hill among the aisles of a farmer-owned supply shop at La Trobe. We're in our brand-new La Trobe site at the minute. We have three stores across the northwest coast. Yeah, we're in my beekeeping department. Kurt, uh, about a year ago you got a call from your manager... Um, what was that? Tell me about that. Uh, so Ben Davis, our general manager, phoned uh, about 12 months ago and said, hey, there's this thing called the Young Guns Program, which is run through a company called Air. Uh, Air is our biggest supplier. They're a, a national warehousing company uh, based around finding new management in ag retail across Australia. Right. And uh, what was that? What was the program? Uh, so that is the Air Young Guns program. Um, it's a pretty intense thing. A few days in Melbourne with some really really uh, heavy training basically on how to run businesses particularly based around retail ag. And it's also, uh, it's got awards attached to it and you actually won. Yeah, most definitely. So uh, I took out the Air Young Guns uh, number one in Australia. Uh, so there were 10 of us from across Australia in the first instance, um, down to the top five, uh, where we were tasked with setting up an open day in stores to be able to prove the skills that we'd learnt uh, with our time in Victoria. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Thank firstly. You very much. That's amazing. Thank you very much. What did you do for that open day? So I, I wanted to go a little bit left of centre. Uh, I'm a beekeeper. Um, we recently created a category in our store, which is the apiary department. Uh, so we held an open day in October, gearing up for the 2022 season. Uh, three hours on a Saturday morning. Uh, we had 150 people through our doors, uh, a transaction every minute, uh, which for, for beekeeping sales is almost unheard of. I wouldn't think it was uh, that hot in demand. Very much so. So there's really only two or three suppliers in Tassie, but only two of us that do the volumes that, that we're sort of talking about here, yeah. So was that um, due to the training, you'd say, that that did so well? Or what, what's going on? That's Definitely. Um, I think 
particularly the retail merchandising side of uh, the business is what I really took away from the Young Guns program. If you can create an environment that's warm, welcoming, inviting, you are going to get repeat customs. Kurt, just tell me a bit about your background too. With Why agriculture? Why this space? So I actually come from a, a, a corporate hardware background, of all things, working for, for Met, Metcash, uh, aka Mitre 10. Uh, Yola came up as a bit of an opportunity for me. I'd been in my previous role for almost 18 years uh, and wanted to do something different. So hence, here I am. Yeah. Here you are, selling uh, bee suits. Yeah, bee suits, gloves, or, or anything you can think of. And so you're, you're a beekeeper yourself, an apiarist? Yes, definitely an apiarist. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, last night I took uh, my last harvest for the season. So, yeah, my wife and I went through and got nearly 30 kilos of honey out of one hive last night. So. Yeah, right. Well done. Thank you very much. How long have you been doing that for? Uh, about the last... 15 years or so thereabouts. Um, I'm a, a bit smaller now than what I have been in the past. It's very hard to run an apiary as well as working full time. Now that you've been named Australia's Young Gun of Agriculture or whatever your title is mm, now, mm. Um, what do you want to do with that? Look, I think my, my next step really will be store management, um, particularly with, with Yolo. This is a, a wonderful company to work for and, and a real opportunity for me to step up into a role that I can really grow into and make my own. A man on the go there, the Yola Co-ops, Kurt Hill, talking to Meg Powell about the National Young Gun Award he won at the Australian Independent Rural Retailers Awards recently. And the Co-op also won three other awards, including Tasmanian and Victorian Retailer of the Year. So the Yola Co-op certainly kicking some goals in the northwest. Well, finally, today the dairy industry was without a doubt one of the hardest-hit agriculture sectors hit by the catastrophic floods in the northern rivers one year ago today. Hundreds of cows were washed away by floodwater, bales of fodder too, crops and pastures were ruined, vats and vats of milk dumped across the region, machinery, infrastructure and homes destroyed. That level of destruction and devastation can take years to recover from. A year on, at Peter Graham's dairy, milk production is still half of what it should be, It'll likely take another six months to reach full production to 100%. Kim Honan visited the farm at Codrington on the Richmond River to revisit the flood impact and discuss the road forward. Catastrophic, yep, in capital letters, Kim. Um, To see um, one and a half metres of water coming over the Richmond River at the lower end of the Richmond River, um, like a tidal wave. Yeah, it was pretty horrendous. Um, to think that um, the tide was that strong, you couldn't walk from the house to the dairy, um, or virtually from the dairy to the house, I should say, because um, we went back to the dairy to get the tractor as we were moving out of the house um, to go and squat over in the dairy for a couple of days. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting times. Um, we ended up with uh, eight inches of water in the house, which is nothing compared to a lot. But once you're wet, you're wet at the end of the day. Um, yeah, the damage is done. And um, we, uh, we, we're still waiting for, um, for things to come together for our house in the sense that um, insurance companies are um, fixing things up for us. They're, um, they're still aligning their, um, their work team to, uh, to do work on our house. Um, the farm, yeah, I suppose that's been as long, slow... Uh, draining process to get that somewhere near back on track and I think I'm still on a very gravelly road I'm nowhere near the highway that's for sure and I think there's a lot of us down here on the floodplain that could say the same thing the highway's in the distance 
and every one of us has a little bit further or it's a little bit closer. So um, we're all at different places. But, um, yeah, look, it's knocked us around, but it's knocked our cows around. When you've got cows standing out in the paddock that have got water almost to their backs, and there's a few of us in that boat here, a bit different to a few others lower downstream that had cattle washed away. We were fortunate that that wasn't the case. But the stress that it's put on our herd, they don't want to milk, they don't want to come back to production, and then going back in calf ready for next year is just taking so long to get the cows back to where they used to be. And then the pastures in the paddock, well, that's, that's another, another job um, where they just aren't responding. We haven't got a weed problem in, per se. Um, the ground's just compacted and then to turn dry like it did uh, in sort of late September, October. Um, it, it exacerbated uh, any summer, summer planting problems. So, yeah, it's, it's made it a yeah, rough road, really has. And um, how much did your milk production drop by and have you reached those levels pre those floods yet? <laughs> wow. Uh, Kim, we, um, from where we were in February to April, we were at 34% of where we were and we thought that was pretty serious. But the, bad, the worst of it is we're still at 50% and um, it's taking that, just that... A little bit too long to get um, to get back on the main road, heading to the highway. Yeah, a little bit too long, but um, yeah, it's happening. And how long do you think it'll be back up to 100% in milk production? If we have a good ryegrass season, I would expect it to be 100% by August, September. Yeah, I would hope August, September. So a year and a half after the floods? Oh, that, yeah, that, yeah, easy enough, yeah, true, yep. And then your income is halved as well. Yeah, you, well, once again, you try not to think about it too much because um, it does it does eat away at you. People need to be paid, and when your income is halved, and protein meals are dearer than like a hundred dollars a ton dearer, interest rates have gone up. Yeah, we all we're all feeling it. So why then are we standing here? You're about to milk your cows. Why didn't you leave the industry? What kept you in it here on the farm? I weren't supposed to ask that. Um, no, this, this industry's what I love. Uh, I've always said milk in my veins. Um, five generations milking cows on the north coast. That's pretty special to me, and I hope to keep that going. Um, trying to get back on track so I can encourage the kids to come home because all they've seen for the last two years is oh, Bill's adding up, geez mum, dad, why do we want to do this? And so the plan is to uh, get it functioning again and show that there can be a profit. And um, yeah, so that's just keeping control on, uh, on costs, which is not easy. Um, when you've got no real green feed out in the paddock, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty tough going. So um, you just got to do the best with what you've got and um, hope for tomorrow. Yeah, good luck to him. Peter Graham, he's Vice Chair of East Oz Milk and he's on his farm at Codrington there alongside the Richmond River and the Northern Rivers of New South Wales talking to Kim Honan. And uh, that's one year ago today after the catastrophic, catastrophic floods hit that particular area. 
Uh, more details of that story online, ABC Rural. And uh, don't forget to our ABC Rural Facebook page. Plenty of great stories there too. We'll have a podcast of today's program up for you very shortly if you missed anything. And we will catch you after midday tomorrow.